morning, if you would open with me to James chapter 2, I've asked David to read James chapter 2 for us and pray. James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality, but be full of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lord. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while well, you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? That you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. To speak and so act with those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and built, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He said that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. <clears throat> Father, we uh, give you glory for what you have done for us. For your son to send him to die on the cross and live a sinless life. And that through faith in him, our sins are forgiven. We are redeemed more. And let's pray that the faith that we have, that it would be an active faith, that we would not think that our works are not important, that um, we would love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would uh, see people in need and see the same thing as flaggers need. Uh, Lord, and not neglect to do that, but that we not show partiality towards one another, Lord. Um, the Lord also just pray that we'd also be reminded that our righteousness is not of our own, that our righteousness comes from Christ. So help us be humble, for Lord, all things orient us to know that the works are good and give you much glory. Um, pray that the word preached um, would bless us and that we would apply it to our lives, Lord. 
and that we would honor you and our faith would grow stronger. Thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. And Father, please give us grace as we come to your word that we would receive it with humility, that you give me grace to preach it with faithfulness, that in all these things you would be lifted up, that we would see your glory revealed in Christ as the one who fulfills all things. So give us grace to walk in the calling that you've given us, that we would be little Christs indeed, little Christians who reflect the glory of our Savior and head. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to grow into his image, that we would be faithful in worshiping you in spirit and in truth, that we would trust you in all things, even and especially in the difficult things, knowing how you intend those, that you ordain those, and that you use those for our good. So help us to be thankful for all these difficulties, to be thankful for the calling of service that you've given us and the example of service that we have in our Savior who went to the cross to bear our sins. We pray this in his name. Amen. You'll turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 26. I'm intending to read the whole chapter this morning, and then Lord willing, what we'll actually be covering is verses 12 through 19. But we'll we'll read the whole thing to help us understand uh, what we're looking at here in, the, in its context. So in Deuteronomy chapter 26, this is what the word of the Lord says. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that he may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. 
You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. We were having breakfast this morning, and um, one of my sons had done a good job eating, and we were going to give him some extra bacon because he had done a really good job eating. And so I hand him the bacon, and the first thing he does is he turns it back to me. He says, Daddy, why don't you take a bite? And I was like, well, buddy, this is your reward. You did a good job with your work. I'm giving it to you. And he said, Daddy, you're the one who worked for it and paid for it. And I, I was amazed. Um, just at his kindness and thankfulness. You could tell he was having a good time with his family at the dinner table. He would, and it's because he wasn't just enjoying himself. He was enjoying what God had given him in a family, what God had given him in food. He wanted to make a return in light of that, that providence that God had given him because he continues to trust that God will provide for him. He's happier because of trusting God and being thankful for what God has given. He's happier than he would be if he had been just focused on himself. And that's the experience for all of us as Christians and all of us who are image bearers. If we want to find joy and happiness, we have to understand that it is exponentially multiplied when we are not focused on ourselves. When we seek to live sacrificially and pursue the blessing of others, we are living in accordance with the design that God has given us. We will flourish in accepting that design that we have to image God by loving God and loving others. And mathematically, for those of you who are so inclined, it, it makes sense. If you pursue the joy of just yourself, you're pursuing the joy of one. If you pursue the joy of the infinite God and of everyone you come into contact with, it's clearly infinitely greater to pursue the joy and blessing of everyone else, starting with God, than it is with yourself. The maximum possible joy you can have in selfishness is one. The maximum possible joy you can have in loving God and loving others is infinite. Selfishness does not actually lead to blessing. There's consequences to it. You can see that with, with my son this morning, when he's responding to the food that we have given him in that way, what is my response as a father, but to want to give him more because I know he's going to be thankful for all of it. And he's not going to be stingy with it. If one of his brothers is hungry and trusting, he's going to share it. He wants to share. Why not give him more? And in that same way, when we love God and we love others and we live sacrificially, God gives us an eternal reward for that service and love. We get more by being less selfish. And there's the immediate joy that we've discussed as well that is unto itself a far greater reward. So as we consider how this main body of Deuteronomy and even this section on coveting is ending, it's ending with this main point that blessing is found in loving God and others, not in sin. Blessing is found in loving God and others, not in sin. We've been talking about how um, in our estimation, it seems right to say that the 10 words are giving a, a macro structure, a big outline that Moses has been following in Deuteronomy 6 through 26. 
And this section we've been looking at that's concluding here in chapter 26 has been focusing on the 10th word, which is specifically focused on coveting everything in your neighbor's household or anything in your neighbor's household. We discussed how the, the 10 words are structured so that it ends with this examination of what the human heart desires and the consideration of whether the human heart is desiring pleasing God or pleasing themselves, whether that human heart is desiring to love the neighbor or to love themselves at the cost of the neighbor. And as we've gone through this section that went back into 25, we've been seeing this, this idea expanded upon to show that what's going, in our, going on in our hearts and in our desires will necessarily manifest in how we live and act and how we treat other people. And part of the repeated theme in the book of Deuteronomy is how our uncircumcised hearts leave us in this place of deserving judgment and consequences. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin, and we all have plenty of sin. When we were looking at the end of chapter 25, it talked about this discussion of Amalek. After discussing sin problems that could likely happen in the community that were right in parallel with how Amalek mistreated the weak and vulnerable. To show that we're just like Amalek in the end, and therefore our end uh, to ourselves will correspond to Amalek's end, being wiped out in judgment. And so when we came into this section in chapter 26, certainly I think what was said here is meant to apply to what Israel was to do when they came into the land, to give this sacrifice of thanksgiving in response to what God had done for the people. But I think it's also meant to foreshadow what God's going to do for them in the final conclusion that leads us into eternity in his presence. And the hinge for it that we discussed last week, the answer to this problem is through the priest. There's this priest that's discussed in verse 4, which is kind of in the middle of the action. And it's anticipating a greater high priest who brings about a better covenant than this old covenant. I think that's that the beginning of chapter 26 is meant to parallel Pentecost and the celebration of the old covenant. And this priest is leading them in a celebration of what I think is foreshadowing a new and better covenant. And he does that because he offers himself as the sacrifice, as the Passover lamb that brings about a new and a better exodus, like we saw in the second section, verses 5 through 11. So now we come into verse 12. And there's a bit of a shift in focus, because much of the focus has been on how we are to give thanks to God for what he's provided. Now the shift in verse 12 says, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. We had looked back in Deuteronomy chapter 14 at this discussion of tithing, and there seemed to be this pattern of every third year, that's mentioned here of taking the tithe that you would have taken in to the place where the Lord would dwell. And instead giving it to the people in your community who are most in need. And there's some, some one commentator I saw was talking about how that might not necessarily be structured for everyone to do it in the same third year, but to have it maybe staggered so that each year there was a contribution in each community. So that way every year there was some sort of return to make sure these people didn't go hungry year by year. So suffice it to say, this is being talked about again here. This is part of what is essential to covenant life for the people of Israel is to meet the needs of those around them who are the most vulnerable. These are people who are members of the covenant. 
people who the sojourner who would have come and joined the covenant people, the fatherless, those who had um, been orphaned, and then the widow who would have been a woman who had lost her husband. In each of these cases, these are people who do not have the head of their household that's above them present. The sojourner would have left the place of his inheritance to come to Israel. Obviously, the orphan does not have his father to protect him and provide for him. Neither does the widow. So Israel is called to, in contrast to the covenant action of having unequal weights and measures that ultimately leads to taking advantage of these vulnerable people, they are to give freely to these vulnerable people. We're seeing that the opposite of coveting is really giving and caring for those in need. This is pure and undefiled religion in the terms that are laid out in James 1. And then we discuss a lot of different aspects about the importance of giving, but also some of the dynamics of how God calls his people to give. Certainly there's the discussion of who we focus on giving, giving priority to those who are part of the covenant community, those who are part of the church, and to those who are especially in need, who don't have family, who don't have a head that can provide for the household. That we also discuss at the end of chapter 24, there is a way in which we give that is meant to be in accordance with encouraging ongoing godliness. They were to glean up to the corners, but to leave the corners so that these vulnerable parties could come and harvest. They could do honest, righteous work, even in their state of need, and be encouraged towards continued godliness. So there's a way in which we are to give that is in accordance with godliness. You see that same principle at work in 1 Timothy 5, where which widows should be supported and what would be the qualifications for that widow. We want to give in a way that encourages ongoing godliness. That's where I think the Bible lays out that if there is a significant question about whether someone's going to use what we give them for sin, if there's evidence to suggest that they're going to use that gift for sin, we don't have to gift. We don't have to be party to sin. We do have to pay our taxes. But, you know, there's those circumstances where someone's going to ask you on the street, hey, can I have some money for food? And then you say, well, I'll take you to the grocery store right now and get you plenty of food. And they're like, oh, I just want the money. Why? If you say you want the food, why can I not give you the food? We're allowed to be discerning as Christians is what I'm trying to say. And these indicators in the book of Deuteronomy have shown us that as well. And yet it is imperative that we be generous people, that we, be, that we would want to, to give and to help. This instruction about the tithe, there's not a, a repeated command of the tithe in the New Testament. Part of the reason is that in Israel, the covenant community is wielding the sword in a way that the church does not. The church wields the keys of the kingdom. The church is able to say, this is a person who knows Christ by their proclamation of faith and their consistent following of Christ in their life. But it is the government that wields the sword. And so there's a difference here in this idea of the tithe, and yet it's imperative that we give, that we give generously and understand that there's great blessing to giving generously. Second Corinthians 9 says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We will receive reward for our giving. We have to understand that it is not a loss to give. Sure, it might be a, a momentary sacrifice, but in God's economy, it is the very means by which we gain. So we must be focused on giving. We must be glad to give, and yet we have 
instruction in the scriptures about how we are to prioritize who we give to. If I were to say that I'm working hard and I'm making a full-time income and I'm very giving with that, and yet I'm giving all my full-time income to one of my neighbors, that's a problem. I need to take care of my wife and my sons. We have to give in accordance with the priorities God's given us. We give to our families and take care of the needs in our families. We give to those who we owe, like we talked about with the government, rendering taxes unto them. We give to those in need, starting with our church, and we seek to pursue a way of supporting missionaries how we can through the context of our local church, through the context of our local church. And what's consistent from Old Covenant to New Covenant, even though there is a difference in the tithe instruction, there's still that same common command to give and to give generously with the understanding that's common throughout that it is better to give than to receive. This passage is moving towards verse 15, where it talks about the blessing that results from living in this way of giving to other people. Selfishness is not actually obtaining more. God is the one who provides the increase. God is the one who provides the rewards. When we are unwilling to be giving and loving, it is not the other person who's ultimately losing out. It is us who is losing out in that selfishness. The people are to declare their following of these commands. Verse 14 goes on to say, I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning or removed any of it while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I've done according to all that you have commanded me. They are to make a proclamation that what they are doing in this worship of God and in this giving to those around them who are in need, they have not done anything that would defile the worship of God. And the terms that are laid out here, um, whether it would be something that was from mourning, probably mourning someone who is dead. So the, the offering is um, not contaminated by the, the proximity to death. The removing it while I was unclean, not coming in contact with anything else that would render someone impure. And then there's that interesting phrase of, and, or offered any of it to the dead. That could be a repetition of the idea of the situation of someone dying, coming in contact with the offering and, and rendering the, the worshiper impure through that contact with death. It could also refer to a pagan practice of worshiping the dead, of offering sacrifices to the dead. And so however you take it, the point remains the same, that the worship of the holy God must be done in holiness. And it pervades every area of life. That's the thrust of this ongoing statement from the people, of all the things they have not done. They are to have an all-pervasive holiness in their lives and in their worship of God. The worship of God certainly must not be tainted by idolatry, but also in this context of coveting, must not be tainted by the sin of selfishness. We worship God for God's glory, not for our own sake. And as we're looking at what's being recited by Israel here and the standard of which they're saying they follow all these commands, the question is, do we follow these commands? And do we follow these commands in this way? And I would say again that I think what Moses is writing here is intended to cut to the heart and to expose us. It's going to be important, especially as we go into the last section of this chapter. Verse 15 says, Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's interesting. This prayer is both 
a thanksgiving for what God has given, but also a petition for ongoing provision from God, both together. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. I, I had to work hard and not make us read all of James this morning, so hopefully that, that's recognized. But it is true. Everything we have from God or have is from God. Everything we're going to need, God will provide. And I think the point in all of this, the statement here about this pervasive righteousness that people somehow have, and yet they don't inherently have, and this dynamic of coming into the land through the um, mediation of the priest and experiencing the joyous presence of God, all this is pointing us ultimately not towards ourselves, but to Christ. It is exposing our sin that we would be driven toward our Savior. He's the one who actually fulfills these commands, who can make this statement and say it very truly. Because when you consider this dynamic that we're looking at, of coming into a bountiful land and giving to those in need, Psalm 72 shows the one who actually does that. It's the son of David. It's Jesus Christ. It is not the people. It is the people's king that does this. Because he, like we discussed last week from John 12, because he is that grain of wheat that goes into the ground and dies, he bears much fruit. And because we abide in him, we bear fruit through him. John 15 lays out that he is the true vine. That language is meant to, to convey that he is the true Israel. Israel was called God's vine in Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5. That's who Jesus is. So if we are going to be able to say what's said here in this passage, it is only through our king. And it is only by abiding in him not in ourselves. And the warning in John 15 is that we must bear fruit. If we abide in him, we will bear fruit. If we do not, we will be burned because we will have neglected to love God and to love others and to fulfill what God has called us to be as his image bearers. So we must rest in Christ and what he has accomplished in this finished work is being demanded here in the book of Deuteronomy. And yet that does not negate us working hard as his followers. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I was reading a, a book by one of my favorite authors here recently. His name's uh, G.K. Beale. And he was uh, making a really interesting comparison and thought. So if you, if you can enter into this thought with me. Uh, Lewis and Clark were two explorers who were going through the United States uh, in the 19th century. And they were exploring the, the territory that had been um, purchased in the Louisiana Purchase. And so th this was a really dangerous trip across the western part of the United States. Because they're, you know, in the 1800s, you don't have the modern... Uh, comforts of, of transportation that we have. So this was really kind of a, a life-staking journey, a, a risk uh, of great significance. And so it's remembered in history because it was such an ex a significant accomplishment that they were able to do this, that they were able to survive, that they were able to traverse through such difficulty, such a great amount of land. We remember them with a, a sense of awe at what they accomplished. If someone wins one of those sweepstakes prizes, and they fly down to Florida and go to Disney World and they come back. No one's amazed that they got there and came back, right? 
no one, no one's like, wow, you made it to Florida and you got back to Tennessee. No one has been, ever been in awe of that. And why? The difference is the means that are available to them. Lewis and Clark did not have a plane. They did not have a runway to get off the ground or onto the ground. They had to go through much difficulty. The person who's going on vacation because of winning the sweepstakes, everything's provided for you. But what do they do? They go. They go to Florida. They go to Florida joyously. They go there excitedly. They're all about that travel. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. And so because of his sufficiency and the means he has given us, we work out our fear and self, our fear. We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in us. The strength rests in him and what Christ has accomplished. That's where Philippians 2, 12 and 13 rests on what Christ did in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He bore that cross for his people. He is the exalted one who has redeemed us from our sins. And so it's a joy. It's a blessing for us to follow in this pattern of love and sacrifice and service because God is with us and God is for us. And this pattern of love and sacrifice is the very means by which we are known as the followers of Christ in John 13 terms. And there's great reward, ultimate reward in following him. Verse 16 says, this day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. It's interesting, this, this verse, you probably heard it when I read it. This is very similar to the Shema that we were going through back in Deuteronomy 6. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart. And with all your soul, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. We talked about that at length, and here it's coming back up again. And so it's interesting. I think this verse, certainly, I think it is a conclusion to the section on coveting. It's showing us that the way to defeat the covetousness that arises in our hearts is ultimately through the worship of God. That we would put our hearts focus on honoring our covenant head. But the other implication here is that if we do not, if we do not put our covetous hearts to death and instead worship God, it means we are covenant breakers. That's where James 2 is saying if we are guilty of one of these commandments, we are guilty of all the law. And it's because our God, like we were discussing, our God deserves and demands perfect holy worship of his perfect and holy name. I think this section also serves as a capstone to this section, this big section at the middle of the Deuteronomy, chapter 6 through 26. This is the culmination of all. And what is reiterating to the people is that they are to follow every single one of God's commands, all the statutes, all the rules he's saying in these multiple ways to emphasize the totality of it, and it's not just the breadth of obedience that's demanded. It's the depth of the obedience that's demanded all the way into our desires, not just what we do, but how we do it, why we do it. This high standard is coming back up at the end here. And as we move forward, I want to keep in mind why the, why is it alluding back to certain passages that it's alluding back to here? 
So let's continue on. Verse 17 says, you have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. It's really interesting that formulate the, that formula there. You have declared today that the Lord is your God. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. That, that sort of covenant formula has seven instances that one author was, was saying where that sort of formula happens in the book of Deuteronomy. So that sort of thing about he will be your God and you will be his people. It happens seven times in Deuteronomy, fitting number. This is the fourth one. And so I think this fourth one is meant to serve as kind of the door hinge going into the next section of whether someone's going to experience covenant blessings or covenant curses. Will you obey his voice? Will you hear his word? Will you follow him? And if we do the hard examination Deuteronomy is beckoning us to do, the answer for each of us is no. We all have an uncircumcised heart. We have ears that are uncircumcised that don't hear his voice even, let alone obey his voice from the heart. Verse 18 says, And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments. This is such an interesting tension. If you read verse 18, and you consider, is what's being laid out here conditional or unconditional? It's essentially impossible to answer that question. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasure possession, as he promised you. It's not about the people. It's about God's promises to them, right? And yet, what does it say next? And that you are to keep all his commandments. So is it conditional or unconditional? Because it's as he promised you, but yet there's a demand that all the commandments be met. And what I would say here is that each covenant, as you go through the Old Testament, you're going to see this happen in each of those covenants. Each covenant has demands, but also has profound grace. That's something we discussed when we were going through the 10 words. One of the things that you miss with the 10 words oftentimes when it's put up on a wall is that it misses the beginning that talks about how I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The 10 words even start with God's grace. But even when you look at Abraham, and certainly Abraham is meant to be on our minds as we're going through this passage, uh, it was we were discussing the dynamic of how they are to recount that their forefather was a wanderer, a perishing Aramean is what we discuss. And certainly I think that's looking at Jacob, but also at Abraham. But when you look at that covenant with Abraham, oftentimes it's laid out as being purely promised. And yet Abraham's told that he must walk before God in blamelessness. Abraham's told that one of his children is going to have to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Even with all the grace that God shows Abraham, and it is absolutely present, there are still demands on Abraham and his seed. So why is there this tension throughout? And I think that reason this tension is baked into the covenants that God made with humanity and with his people is that it's anticipating the God-man. It's anticipating our Savior. When Jesus comes and he fulfills all righteousness, God is doing it all. It is by God's grace alone that we are saved through Christ. And yet Christ fulfills 
all those commands with perfect obedience so that everything that is demanded is met in fullness by him. This discussion from Deuteronomy 6 of uh, following the commandments with all your heart and with all your soul, that son that's being instructed in Deuteronomy 6 ultimately is pointing towards the perfect son, God the son, who does love the Lord his God. And as that perfect son, he fulfills what Israel could not be, called out of Egypt as, as God's firstborn son in Exodus 4, and yet they failed to be a faithful son. Deuteronomy 17, at the middle of Deuteronomy, was beckoning us to see that it is the king who writes the law, fulfills the law, and does what the people could not do. And not only in what we're discussing here of keeping the commandments, he fulfills the entire sacrificial system for the people. The blessings and curses, we talked about this earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, the blessings and curses are there. And what our Savior has done is fulfilled the commandments and then taking the cursing we deserve for our covenant breaking, our commandment disobedience. He's taken that cursing on himself that we might receive the blessing through him. And he does that by giving what we'll see as we go towards the end of Deuteronomy, a better covenant than this old covenant, a covenant where our hearts are fully circumcised. And that's what we saw in Psalm 72. Psalm 72 talks about how blessing the, the promise to Abraham that blessed are those who bless you, that's going to come to the peoples through the king. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. That's what Christ has done for us. He's taken our curse that we might receive the blessing. He's fulfilled all of the covenants that we might be brought into a new and better covenant where the righteousness that God demands is provided for us so that we can bear fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us. And as we see, we discussed this back in Romans 13, we fulfill the law by loving one another as Christ has loved us. Amen. And the Lord has declared today that you are people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. It's really interesting. This, I think this passage here is laid out as the fulfillment of what we looked at back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4 talked about how Israel was called to be a special nation, set in honor as a testimony to God's glory to the nations by their covenant keeping. That's what they were made to be. And God's saying he's going to do that for them. The interesting thing is, when you, when you read this, it says that he's going to set them in praise and in fame and in honor. And what's interesting is back in Deuteronomy 7 and 8, there were these admonitions for Israel to not be presumptuous on God's grace and to think that they had just deserved it by being better than other people. Deuteronomy 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeems you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what's going on here in Deuteronomy 26? Is this different than that? And I think the answer is unequivocally no. This is the, the honor and fame and praise here in Deuteronomy 26 is not inherent to the people. It's coming from God. God is going to provide the salvation to the people so that the glory they have is derived from him 
It's not their glory unto themselves. It's the glory of God reflected in them as his image bearers who have been saved by his grace. So that's where I think it's, we need to be careful as Christians. It is right to seek honor from God. It's right. You should want to seek honor from God. Romans 2 requires. And to illustrate, <clears throat> if, if a child goes up to their father and says, Daddy, look what I did. That child's not going up to their father saying, look what I did because they want to flaunt themselves necessarily. Because when they go up to daddy to receive honor from daddy, it is because they are honoring their father as someone who can bestow honor because of his honorable state. So what that means is the child's ultimately honoring the father is one who can bestow honor. When we seek for God to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, we are acknowledging that we want that honor from God because God is the source of all honor and glory. We should pursue honor as Christians because it originates from God, not from us. And as we seek to follow in the pattern of Christ who has done this, the, the one at the right hand who is above all nations, at the right hand of the Father, the high and exalted one, we can see that this pursuit of loving God and loving others in faith and in obedience and sacrifice is not just a good option. It is the ultimate best option and indeed the only option. As we live our lives, and certainly especially in the context of family, we need to live our lives at such a pace that we can be examining our hearts. Oftentimes what happens is when we live our lives at such a fast pace, heart maintenance, heart consideration goes by the wayside. And oftentimes it goes by the wayside because prayer time usually gets sacrificed in the pursuit of busyness. When we pray, like we were discussing in Sunday school, when we pray and we are having regular ongoing daily confession of sin, we are allowing God to tenderize us in such a way that we don't get caught up in the busyness and allow sin to grow unchecked. And for men who are leading their wives and their children, they need to live in such a way that that sort of heart instruction for our children can be done as well. That we can teach our children and live with our children and show our children how to enjoy God and worship him rightly. We need to have time together as a family. Quality time is only found in quantity time. And as we spend that time together, we must not be lazy, but we must seek to worship God from the heart and lead those under our care to do so as well. God has summed up this covenant here in the book of Deuteronomy. They are to love God, and yet loving God, as we've seen in this passage, necessitates loving his image bearers. Like we saw in James 2, you cannot forsake those in need and say that you have indeed genuine faith. If we love God, we will love those who bear his image and if we love God, we will keep his commandments and we will make no compromises for sin. We will love God who is perfectly holy and we will worship him in perfect holiness. And we can do that with joy because it doesn't rest on us. It rests on the finished work that Christ has accomplished. And not only on what he has done in the past, but in the fact that he empowers us in the present by the Holy Spirit who is in us forever all the way into eternity future. And so we rest in Christ at every point 
and know that he will never leave us or forsake us. So we look at what God commands, that we love him from the heart and that that would include us living sacrificially. And we know that this is the best life. And as we pursue seeking to love God, love others and deny ourselves, our joy is going to be infinitely multiplied. We should not let our joy be limited to one because that joy will be taken away. But let our joy be complete, loving God and loving others. Let's pray together. Father, it is a joy to know that what is demanded and rightly demanded from you, you have provided, you have given. You've sent your son to cleanse us from our sins, to give us newness of life, to show such an immense love and to empower us to imitate that immense love. So please do that work in us. Give us grace and humility. Help us to exude your glory and to be a people who shows your honor to our community and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.